0: welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast about how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. Today I'm delighted to welcome doctor and writer Catherine Mannix. Catherine started her medical career in cancer care before working as a palliative care consultant in hospices, hospitals and patients' homes. She started the UK's first CBT clinic for palliative care patients and now teaches communication skills to healthcare professionals. She's the best-selling author of With the End in Mind, and of Listen, How to Find the Words for Tender Conversations. In this podcast, she talks about the life-changing power of listening, going viral, and, of course, death. Catherine and I are also going to be in conversation at the Birmingham Literary Festival on Sunday the 9th of October. Unfortunately, I broke my knee this week, so I'm not yet 100% sure I'll be able to make it, but I'm hopeful. And if I can't, I can guarantee that Catherine will be more than worth the ticket price on her own. Hello, Catherine, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm just so delighted to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, Christina, it's so lovely to be here. Thank you.
0: First of all, I want to congratulate you on having written a book as brilliant as With the End in Mind, which I thought would be pretty much impossible. So many, many congratulations on that. I absolutely loved it. But before we start about the book, I want to ask you, I want to go back to the beginning of your career and the events that have shaped your writing. So I understand you always wanted to be a doctor. What planted the seed for you? I don't really know because I don't come
1: from a medical family but when I was a little girl I used to play hospitals um, and the the dollies and the teddies were arranged on camping stools and they all had their little charts next to them and I think probably my mum was a big fan of emergency ward 10. (laughs) maybe that's where the idea came from but I I knew that I wanted to be a doctor people would often say to me don't you mean a nurse which is a really interesting Mm. thing on on reflection of course that would have been the 1960s when I was a little girl and perhaps women weren't thought to be suitable as doctors but my family were very supportive and I think it never really occurred to me that I couldn't until a careers teacher said to me that she didn't think that girls would get into medical school (laughs) and I think I still wonder whether she really thought that or whether she was playing me you know that determination to just say I'm going to show you Um, so I was very happy at medical school and you know for the first couple of years it's all science and then you come to ward-based opportunities, meeting patients, clerking them. And that was when I suddenly got my comeuppance for my cockiness in the 1960s, because what I realised as a junior medical student was that doctors didn't have the relationship with patients that I wanted to have. Nurses did.
0: See, that really shocked me. I, mean, I, I, mean, I was shocked, although in a way not surprised, because if I think back to some of the experiences I've had with doctors over the years, there's been a kind of well shocking lack of apparent empathy and compassion and um and clearly things have changed a, a reasonable amount um not entirely it has to be said but i wondered was that a surprise for you because you are clearly a deeply compassionate person and i presume that that caring instinct was part of what brought you into medicine was it a surprise for you that it was so divided between the nurses and the doctors
1: I think it's important that I, th- I say that I wasn't seeing a lack of compassion from doctors what I was seeing was a lack of bedside presence right that they were kind of task focused and moved on yes and that the nurses were getting to know individual patients They were getting to know their families. I was on a ward where people were very seriously sick that there were deaths all of the time because it was an adult haematology ward. And in the 1970s, early 1980s, the treatments weren't anything like as good as they are now. Um, So I was getting to know patients and, you know, feeling kind of bonded to them. And then they would be so sick that they were dying. And I didn't have a place in that room because I wasn't the right tribe at that point. And the nurses were fantastic. They could see I was having this absolute crisis of identity and career choice. And they just took me in and they said, come on, you you know this man. You've been looking after him since he first came into hospital. We, we're going to help him turn over in bed or we're going to give him a bath now. Why, why don't you come in and help us?
0: Mm.
1: and what was fantastic for me about that was that whilst medical school was teaching me what to do the nurses were teaching me how to be
0: mm. Mm. and that you 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 write in your book about that sort of crisis stress and kind of is this the right thing for me how long would you say that lasted
1: It was, it was weeks rather than months or years, but it was a very turbulent few weeks because during that period of time, I was thinking about, well, what do I do? Do I stop now? I've done, you know, two and a half years at medical school. Do I stop now and go back to the beginning? Mm. Um, And, and again, the nurses were fantastic in saying, well, you don't have to start again. What you can do is be the sort of doctor that you want to be and actually, Probably the sort of doctor we want you to be as Mm. well. Mm. And of course, palliative care as a notion hadn't been invented in those days. So eventually, although I didn't know it at the time, I was going to be able to find a niche Mm. in a team where those doctor nurse roles are quite blurred and that it was okay to be able to use those skills of
0: presence alongside patients that I'd learned from the nurses in my medical role. I mean, it's fascinating to think had palliative care not been developing as a concept during that time, how much of a difference you might have made and whether you would have had the influence energy to bring in some equivalent. I kind of feel you would have done actually, but obviously we can't know exactly because you you made enormous changes in the care that was brought about. But that was within a, a cultural context where things were shifting a little bit anyway. Tell us about your first encounter with death as a young medic and the effect that that had on you. My first encounter with death was actually with a a dead
1: person, an already dead person. And so at medical school, um, I think a lot of people know that we learn anatomy by dissecting the Preserved dead bodies of people who volunteered that gift when they die, which is absolutely fantastic. And the people who teach anatomy are usually surgeons in training, very junior in their training, who need to understand the anatomy inside out. So when they stick knives in us, they do it in a safe way, knowing where all of the nerves and blood vessels are underneath the skin. So those anatomy demonstrators earn enough money to pay their rent by doing emergency accident, and emergency sessions as well. And so our anatomy demonstrator invited us to join him on a shift and we we went one at a time. So he was called out to an ambulance in the forecourt of the hospital where a man had been brought in, in a state of cardiac arrest with the paramedics doing cardiopulmonary resuscitation Um, the ECG leads were all there for him to look at you could see his heart had been standing still throughout all of that time they'd never managed to get his heart restarted and he was asked to go out to the ambulance to tell the resuscitation people they could stop and then they would drive the ambulance round to the mortuary and his body would be unloaded there so he took me into the ambulance to show me how you recognize that death has happened and you you need to very carefully check that the heart isn't beating that there are no breath noises that because the brain hasn't had oxygen for more than a certain amount of time the pupils don't respond to light anymore and the the blood vessels in the back of the eye clearly the blood isn't circulating anymore and of course, this wasn't the first dead person I'd met because I'd met the the woman whose body we were dissecting. So this, this is my second dead body. But the difference here was that this was a person in pyjamas. Mm. This was a person who looked as though he was asleep. He looked slightly startled and he didn't look dead. Um, I kept thinking, this guy's going to wake up in a minute. So my uh, doctor got out of the ambulance to go back into A&E and I couldn't leave the ambulance. I kept thinking, you know, if we just just wait for a moment, I'm sure this person is going to take another breath. He just doesn't look dead. And at that point, this very junior surgical doctor stopped being my anatomy trainer and became a person, got Mm. back inside the ambulance with me and said, look, this is how we all feel.
0: Mm.
1: Let's do it again put your stethoscope on his chest just completely reassure yourself there is no heartbeat there are no breath sounds he is completely safe to go to the mortuary and that was such a wise thing to say because that's what I was worrying about Mm. his safety Mm. and then it was so enormous and yet we went straight back from this dark car park that's just illuminated by not very brilliant orange lights back into the glare of the emergency room where the next person we had to see was a child who'd stuck a smarty up his nose Mm. and just the utter mundanity the Mm. contrast was Mm. really startling and just a really good lesson
0: and I read that within a few weeks I think maybe within your first month of um qualifying as a doctor you'd signed more death certificates than any other doctor in the hospital is that right so I you know we're going to have the police
1: coming and knocking at my door if we? we're not we're not. Careful. <laughs> I went back as as a newly qualified doctor to that first ward where those nurses had been so kind to me. and I would in fact been back as a finally a student as well. It became my my sense of place in the hospital. And because there were so many very sick people with all sorts of really hard to manage illnesses, yes we had a much higher death rate than most of the other wards in the hospital. And so I got to be on first name terms with the fantastic clerk who used to come around the wards with the death certificate book. Um, And she would keep a running total, which, you know, that's not a league you want to be top of, is it? (laughs) But it meant that I was learning so much. I was learning about that end part of life from the nurses helping me still to be present. But also I was learning how to talk to families who are keeping that vigil at a a bed where somebody is dying and how to talk to families after a person has died. So it was a fantastic
0: apprenticeship Mm. for me. You were very young. I think for most of us, when we first come across a dead body and very often it's a member of our family, Of course, as a doctor, you you have a different training. But what effect do you think it had on you at that point in your life to be exposed to so much death?
1: It's hard to go back and remember fully now. But my sense is that what I realized was that this is not something to be afraid of, but it is something to be very respectful of. So I think rather than fear, what I felt was a kind of awe Mm. and that to be present in a room as a person dies is as momentous as to be present in a room as a person is born, which, Mm. of course, as medical students we also do. that, That change from alive to no longer alive is so profound. And, of course, people bring all sorts of other belief systems into that so people who are profoundly religious will see that as as a religious moment but I think whether you're religious or not it's it's a deeply spiritual moment Mm. there's a real sense of something very important and transcendent going on in that room and that the relationships between the people in that room and the person who's just died but also between each of them will be forever altered by having been there at that moment.
0: And do you think so many young people feel sort of invincible, sort of immortal? And obviously, well, I imagine many of your friends were not medics. Did there, Was there ever any kind of gulf between you and non-medical people because of this exposure to something that most people don't think about for years and years and years?
1: What a great question, and I've never been asked it before. But actually, uh, my flatmates at university were either medical students or agriculture students. And of course, farmers are incredibly matter-of-fact about matters of life and death. So I think we were a group of friends who were not uncomfortable at the concept of mortality. Um, Farming relies on the concept of mortality for, Mm. for its business, So, no, if I'd had a different friendship group, perhaps it would have been different. But we were all um, just very matter of fact about it.
0: And what role did humour, black humour play, if any, in dealing with all of this? Oh, hugely. And medical
1: students are warned at the very beginning of of medical school to remember to be respectful, even though humour might be necessary to get you through. Mm. And I think that's a really important part of the um, the pastoral care in medical school to find that balance for people, so that they don't become stressed mm. and distressed, or feel that they can't make a joke. But also to think about the impact of what you're saying, and and whether it's respecting the other people who are in the room, and respecting the person if it's a dead person who you're you're talking about. So we were all immensely grateful to and respectful of. The bodies that we were dissecting, for example, we weren't told anything about them. Obviously, we knew they were male or female bodies. That's all we knew. We all gave them a name so that we could talk about them with a name. Mm. And and that generally was a respectful thing to do. But as I worked in medicine and especially in palliative care, we do have a very, very dark sense of humour. And it's all about the recognition of mortality and and the universality of that and sometimes we do have to be a little bit careful that that it's almost gallows humor
0: Mm.
1: it's really really important that people can use it and the people who I've spoken to whose sense of humor is the most similar are soldiers who've seen combat
0: Mm, how interesting yeah I do wonder actually given the culture how the cultural climate changes and what is regarded as acceptable in humour changes i wonder if that will have any impact on on that kind of um coping mechanism in a way yeah. uh because you know what you can say and what you can't say does change all the time what other coping mechanisms did you have for because i mean what seeing young people and young parents in particular die must have been and must continue to be i know you don't do clinical work now but it it is always tragic how how did you make sure that you kind of didn't fall apart essentially
1: one of the things that I did if if I took something home and it was in my head and I couldn't get get it out of my head was to write it out of my head and so I've got a a folder of A4 sheets and my rule to myself was that it mustn't be self-indulgent so Mm -hmm. a single side of A4 was my my self-imposed limit where I would um, note the story and the reflections around the story just very, very briefly. Of course, it was on paper, so there's a date for them all, but no names in case I ever lost the folder. Um, And at the time, that was just simply because all of this is too big to stay in my head. Mm -hmm. So they're not all sad things. You know, the first baby I delivered is in that. Uh, set of papers for example Um, but they were things that were emotionally huge and my intention simply was not to have to carry them around these Mm. days medical students have supervision groups and people they can go and talk to but we didn't have any of that so that began a habit that I kept on with for the rest of my career never with any intention that I would do anything with them, And I would read them back from time to time and realise, as an older physician, things that I hadn't appreciated as a medical student or a younger doctor, um, and feel quite kind of tender towards that young girl who was trying to find her way and what would I tell her now. And it was only when I came then to think about if I'm going to talk to the public about dying... I want people to understand it the way my grandmother understood it. She understood it from being there, from being a participant, a carer, an observer at deathbeds. So I don't want to tell people about dying because that's just completely dull and nobody will read it. I want people to come with me into those rooms and be alongside me as Mm -hmm. we think about what's happening to this person. And I've got this folder full of those very people to remind me of what it was like you know things like the time of day or an odd thing that somebody said a little snatch of conversation so as a coping mechanism I began writing and then that writing was a kind of gift to future me to come back to when I started to write with the end in mind.
0: Well, again, I want to talk more about with the end of mind in in a a few minutes, but did you not realise that what, well, I don't know, I haven't seen the notes, but obviously I've read the book and reviewed it and adored it. I don't know how different the notes were to some of the stories that appeared in the book. Clearly the substance would have been the the same, but did you realise that you were a brilliant writer? I'm,
1: I'm not sure I can ever answer that question, Christina. So um, I've always written. Um, I've recognised that teenagers write when they're miserable. I've got plastic bags of juvenilia that are just excruciating in the attic. Um, so no, I thought that I was a person who felt better for writing, mm-hmm. but I don't think I ever thought that I was a person who could write for publication or who could write for publication that would be worthwhile? Um, that that's still astonishing to me. It's it's still overwhelming that people find something that they enjoy in the writing.
0: Tell us a story about how the book came about, uh, I, the radio show, and so on—the original sort of trigger. So it it
1: was it was all a very strange series of events. I'd decided that I wanted to do something about the public understanding of dying and I didn't quite know what it was um, but I just thought it's terrible that 30 years in palliative care later I'm still meeting people who don't know what to expect are just as frightened they're frightened by all of their suppositions and the bad information that's out there what could be done about that um and maybe I'm a person who might be able to make a contribution to changing that in some way. But what would you do? How, where would you start? So round about the time that all of that was milling in my head, I was invited to speak on One to One on Radio 4. And the background is that, uh, that the writer and producer and very funny person that is David Schneider have been invited to be their guest. And I guess that they were hoping he was going to do something funny because he is hilarious. And he said, yes, he'd love to be their guest. And he wanted to talk about death. So I gather that there was then quite an impasse whilst they tried to persuade him that death was actually the last thing that anybody wanted to listen to him speaking about. And he held his ground. And he said he wanted to speak to a person who knew that they were dying. He wanted to know what does it feel like to be really staring in the face. And he wanted to speak to an expert in death. And they went into a flap because they then needed to find those two ingredients. And they found the fabulous Jenny Disky, who was was writing and, Mm -hmm. and talking about her cancer at the time. And one of the production team, the editor, phoned her sister, who's a doctor, to say, I need an expert in death. And her sister, who's a friend of mine, said, oh, you need my friend Kath. So on the basis of no provenance whatsoever... Um, I was the the doctor expert in death for this radio program, uh, which was uh, which was recorded in Broadcasting House, and which was extraordinary because of course I had incredible uh, stage fright waiting to go into the studio, and then when I got into the studio, there's a table with those big microphones with the orange ends on them and this massive tech desk and at that point something flipped because David who'd been completely hail fellow well met as we were walking through broadcasting house then came clean and said I haven't slept all night last night I'm so anxious about talking about this Um, if I get upset I want all the lights to go out I don't want you to carry on recording if I'm having a having a turn and suddenly I was transported to my familiar place of sitting opposite a person who's really frightened about their own death or the death of a person they love. And I can do this. This is, this is familiar to me. And so we had that conversation for an hour, actually a little bit over an hour. And at the end of it, the tech desk man, was leaving in tears oh no what have I done and he said no 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 I have to phone my brother one of the things that you've just spoken about that that said our dad was dying safely we didn't realize that and we've all been traumatized by what happened and I need to go and tell my brother (laughs) before I go to my next studio and oh wow goodness me and then of course it gets edited down to 14 minutes for broadcast which was masterly And when it went out, it got huge feedback because it turns out that listeners do want to listen to good information about Mm. death and dying. And so they selected it as their best in series and rebroadcast it just before Christmas. And the second broadcast was heard by a literary agent who got in touch with me to say, have you ever thought about writing a book? You told a story during that broadcast and I wonder whether you have any more stories. And that was at the point when the folder that's followed me through my career flipped into my head. And I thought, goodness, yes, I've got so many stories.
0: And Catherine, I mean, it's an incredible story. I know the the book went to auction and then it all, you know, kind of went mad from there. But at that point, when you were approached by Andrew Gordon to write the book, what were your hopes and expectations for the book? Well, Andrew was
1: absolutely fantastic because first of all, he he had to explain to me how you would write a book proposal, what what a literary agent does, um, and and he's so lovely. And I know I know that you know him. He even said to me, "Look, you might find if you meet me that it doesn't feel very comfortable, and you know I'm not the right person." But we're a big agency. I'm sure there'll be somebody who's a match for you. And that immediately said to me, "You're the right person" because that mm, level of humility, amazing, absolutely, just lovely, yes. just lovely. Um, So, I thought that I would be able to write something that was decent, you know, (laughs) that people wouldn't (laughs) think, oh, you know, I'd I'd put the full stops in the right places and the sentences would make sense. That was, I think, my level of aspiration. Um, And Andrew asked me to send him some stories. So, I got out my notebook In fact, I didn't really need to get the notebook out because I I had several stories in my head that I thought would be good stories to use, some of which I had been used to telling when I was teaching medical students because we polish our stories over time, of course. Um, But I did get the folder out just to make sure that I wasn't misremembering details. And I sent him six stories um, that were I allowed them to be three times as long as the single sheet of A4 because I still didn't want to be self-indulgent and then I went down to London to meet him um, and this was still very early on and he said well yeah I really I, I liked your stories, so I can see how they um, will help people to understand the processes but they're, they're rather short aren't they And that was the transformational moment. Oh, okay, because they were, I was frustrated by how short they were because I didn't think that I should be allowing myself to be me in the story. I was allowed to be a person, a character in the story because obviously I was opening the door and going into the room and having the conversation with the patient or the family or whatever, But there were so many observations I wanted to make about how it felt to be doing that, how it seemed to be for the family. So I was now given permission actually to write the story the way I would tell it. And I sent the six stories back to him. And they were the stories that went into the proposal, which then caused such such a riot around Publishing world, so he then came back to me and said, Okay, I've I've got 14 companies, publishing companies, who'd like to publish your book. And I think at that point, I started to realize that something unusual was going on. Where he was very clear, saying, This does not usually happen. Um, but also, he, he told me afterwards, when he'd heard, when he'd read the first stories in their truncated form, he'd been thinking about who would be a good Ghost writer to match me with to oh. help to bring the stories out, um, and then when I sent them back again the way I wanted to tell them, he realised he probably didn't need to do that. Um, and then as I went round the the publishing companies, we I went down to London and we visited six companies over two days, and I was just utterly terrified, dry mouth, couldn't eat lunch the whole time. And yet people were saying lovely, lovely things about the stories, about the style of the writing. I had no idea what the level of the way publishing companies talk to writers might be. You know, I come from medicine. Um, If if one of my orthopaedic surgery colleagues says to me, Kath, thanks, that was really helpful that's that's just amazing that's a wonderful thing so I didn't know whether this was kind of a a different currency and they're lovely like this to everybody or whether this was as special as it could have felt if I'd taken my guard down so I never took my guard down because I just was so terrified and people were saying things like um so how do you how do you craft the arc of the story now Because I've never been trained to write, I could work out what arc of the story might mean, but it wasn't an expression that had meaning for me particularly. And I kind of knew that the right answer to that question wasn't, I sit in my kitchen with my laptop and I bash it out. Mm. But that is in fact the method just to sit sit down and write it Mm. and then read it back. And when I read them back, they either would feel like a story, Or they would feel like a case report. And when they felt like a case report, they wouldn't do because that was the wrong... Okay, so I know the expression now, voice. That Mm -hmm. was the wrong voice Mm. because that was a different sort of publication. And, of course, that's the sort of publication I'd been writing for, for 30 years, a, a medical audience and medical journals. And it was so delicious to be able to not have to do that and to be able to introduce these fantastic people and their brilliant families and the lovely colleagues who I worked with down the years in a way that would make somebody who was listening to the story or reading the story think, "Wow, I wish I wish I'd known that person." They 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 sound fantastic. So I kind of had a I had an aspiration in my head as I was writing that I wanted these stories to sound not out of place if the book, if some of the stories in the book were used for Radio 4's Book of the Week,
0: Mm.
1: which it never was. And also that if it were to be dramatised, it would have the feel of Call the Midwife, Mm.
0: that you would
1: really care about the person, the family, the domestic situation, the relationships, and the staff and the people who were doing their best to be helpful without getting in the way. So I had a kind of vision in my head or tone of voice in my head of how, how it should be perceived when mm. it was read. Um, and that was it. I just literally sat in the kitchen and sometimes they declared to themselves. I remember getting up one morning because I'd woken up thinking about a particular person and her story required to be told. And I've heard other writers subsequently describing this, uh, of of sitting as the story tells itself to you, and you've got to be able to type fast enough to keep up with the story telling itself. And it's it's a really bizarre and inexplicable experience, but several of the stories declared themselves in that way, and that was just so interesting.
0: So what's fascinating is that you had a career that uh, the word i think the word is old fashioned vocation but a career that certainly has the feel of looked and sounded like a vocation to be um, a, a, a doctor who had a mission to to make dying better and to help people understand dying better but it's almost sounds as if this was a whole new thing you fell in love with and almost like another vocation is that what it feels like felt like the writing Mm. yes it
1: does that's a really lovely articulation of it i did fall in love with it i loved writing time would just disappear and once I was able to do it for a reason instead of it being self-indulgent and I recognize now that that's been a kind of censure on me since I very first started writing Um, once there was a purpose for it which wasn't about me that kind of unlocked a door to a room where I could go and sit and write and indulge the love of writing because it was going to be useful it was going to serve a purpose that was beyond just making me feel satisfied.
0: Very interesting, Catherine, because I think I think we had I, I'm sort of sensing similar upbringing, which is about self-indulgence. And uh, because I always had this thing of, um, you know, I came to journalism quite late, as you know, and even then I had this feeling and I still sort of have this feeling of I'm only allowed to write if I have a commission. If somebody has asked me to write this thing, then it's my job to do it, and I must do it. But to sit down and write something for the sheer fun of it—that is extremely self-indulgent. I'm not allowed to do it. <laughs> and, um, and I've had—and that's something to do with my background and upbringing, to do with public service, and who knows what where these things come from. But it's—it's it's evident from so much of what you've said this sense of kind of decency. You know, it would be competent. It would be, you know, it, that you're you're not allowed to fly in a way. It's not about flying, is it? You have in fact flown and you are flying, but there wasn't a sense that that was the thing to be doing, really.
1: Well, it's, it's also very, very strange, um, and I think it's important to to note here, Christina. She said, eyeballing her on the screen, <laughs> um, that one of the reasons it's flown is because of your absolutely outstanding review. In the Sunday Times of the week that that, with the end in mind, was published because that was the thing that led to a flood of people reading the book, the bestsellers charts. And I will always be indebted to you for that. That was just
0: amazing. Well, I I wrote what I thought that you wrote the book, but thank you for that. And that was, you know, I'm not responsible for how people respond to the review, but it was just and is such a wonderful, wonderful book. And now, of course, you have written another one. And as I said, I didn't see how you, you know, how you would be able to match the first one. When you were writing it, did you have a sort of sense of second album syndrome?
1: Oh, huge. I absolutely got, I said it to lots of people. I really understand the difficult second album uh, thing now. So I was never going to write a second book. Really? Oh, no, I was never going to write a second book. I still was a doctor who wrote a book at that point. I wasn't a writer. And when you write a bestseller, of course, your publishers are very, very keen that there will be other books. And they were lovely in being encouraging. But I felt like, no, I I have said what I came here to say. Thank you. And I'm very happy now to continue to campaign on the coattails of that book. I don't think... That, you know, more death and dying stories are going to be a helpful contribution to the world from me. Other voices, perhaps, but not from me. And then the correspondence started. And it started very quickly, about, oh, I don't know, four or five days after the book went on the market. I got a message. Somebody found my personal Facebook page because, of course, I was just um, a private citizen. I wasn't anybody who was known by anybody at that point, but I have quite an unusual name. So somebody found my private Facebook page and sent me a message request. And she said, my mum died five years ago. And as I sat with her dying. I was overwhelmed by the awfulness of what I saw and heard. And I have been in therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder almost since then for five years. And last night I read your story about the French lady, which is a very early chapter in, in the book that describes my first boss in palliative care, describing the process of ordinary dying and how gentle it actually is to a patient. So she said, I read the chapter about the French lady and I realised that my mum had died completely safely and comfortably. And last night, for the first time in five years, I slept right through the night.
0: Oh.
1: And I sat and wept. And then thought, okay, that book was worth that effort already. It doesn't really matter what happens now. It's already been worthwhile. But then what happened, of course, was that it got huge, and I had to get sensible, proper, professional social media places where people could find me instead. And they were flooded with messages. Some like hers, people reflecting on deaths they'd seen, some from people who were getting themselves ready to die, but lots from people saying, Okay, you convinced us this is something we need to talk about. But how? How do you even start that conversation? Will anything ever feel normal again if we take the lid off this box? Um, Or, you know, I I want to talk to my family because I know that I'm nearing the end of my life and they won't let me. Or, I think my dad thinks I'll make all the medical decisions when he gets more frail, but I don't know what he wants and I don't know how to ask him. Um, So lots and lots of correspondence about how to have conversations that really, really matter, but they're so overflowing with emotion that people just aren't sure how to start it. And I thought, actually, I've got quite a lot to say about that. So I went back to my lovely editor and said i think i think i think i might have a second book and and she was delighted and said that's fantastic but not a second death book and i thought oh that's a bit awkward because actually that's who i am and that's what i do but she was absolutely right and so it made it a little bit more difficult because i had to think across the span of life and i had to draw upon Um, my cognitive therapy practice Mm -hmm. as well as my palliative care practice and just you know being a human being in a family and a, a trainer and working in big hospitals and managing services and all of those different roles and she was right that to be able to talk about those conversations that make us feel daunted we need to think about them from the very beginning of life up to and including the end of life and so that's how Listen was born.
0: I love the fact that you use the word tender rather than difficult or challenging in terms of the conversations because they are difficult and challenging conversations, but tender puts the whole thing into a completely different realm. When did you start um, sort of thinking the word tender in relation to all of all of this? It's something I've been using at work
1: for, for quite a while before I retired. And it actually started... Uh, again, on a surgical ward with one of my very dear surgery colleagues uh, was going into to talk to a patient and family to tell them the unwelcome news that the cancer had come back and was now no longer going to be operable. And this is somebody who had spent, you know, a whole day of his life in an operating theatre with this patient and family well with the patient and then talking to the family afterwards um and so he was really really committed he was he was bound up into this person's success and this person's well-being and so for him it was a difficult conversation because he'd done his best he would bought this patient several years of good healthy living and this was a tragedy for him as well. And he'd said to me, I, this, is, this is such a challenge. I hate these difficult conversations. And I said to him, yeah, they, they hurt because they matter, don't they? What do you think would happen in your head about going through that door for that conversation if instead of difficult, you called it tender? Tender. And I thought he might laugh or roll his eyes at me, to be honest, but there was a kind of a pause. There was that beat. And then I saw him swallow and his eyes fill. Mm. And he said to me, well, I have to get through that door. Mm. And I said, yeah, you do. But look, look at you. And actually, just in case it helps, I've wept my way through a thousand consultations where we've talked about the end of life and it doesn't seem to matter take you through the door. They trust you. They love you. Mm. They will be glad that it's you that
0: has to break this news. It's very interesting. One of the things I noted in or noticed in the book is that I I trained as a coach last year and I do some coaching now. And um, when in the training that I had, which was excellent, I, I was amazed by how very similar it is actually the process of, of of listening, a kind of structured listening and reflecting back and asking the right question at the right time. And um when I was first told you you know, you should be the other person should be talking 80% of the time at least, and you should be talking twenty percent of the time. I was thinking, oh my God, that's gonna kill me. Like even even in my even in my journalistic interviews, which I've been doing for donkeys here, you know, sometimes when I'm listening to them, I'm thinking, shut up, Christine, let the poor interviewee get a word in edgeways. But um but it it really is so powerful when they do nearly all the talking, as long as you as long as it is structured and as long as you are Guiding them, it's not just a kind of endless Hamlet monologue that is leading nowhere. It's astonishing how powerful that can be, and it's interesting because it's in a way such a simple thing and something that can absolutely transform a a conversation, the understanding of something, even a a perspective on life. Actually,
1: yeah, it was really interesting working out how to how to address that question from readers of how do we have this conversation? Because the answer is for me, I go into a room and I sit down with you and we have a conversation and I'm not thinking about how to have the conversation. I'm doing what I do. And it's one of those things where if you are very used to doing something and you polish the way that you do it, you do it without really thinking about it but because I trained as a cognitive therapist I probably had that same uh, insight in my cognitive therapy training that you had during your coach training that actually oh all those conversations that I've been having down the years that have worked okay have worked okay because I was doing this I didn't know this was a thing that people should do Mm -hmm. it's just that it so happened that that is pretty much what I did do Mm. and that's why it works and the lovely thing in cognitive therapy is trainers and supervisors saying to you when you get stuck and the same will be true in a coaching conversation I'm quite sure when you get stuck you very often realize you've drifted from the model
0: Mm. Mm. and you
1: go back to the model at that point so when I was coming to write listen I thought well actually the, the most structured conversations that I have deliberately structured on my cognitive therapy conversations let's go back and think about what happens during those conversations what's the essence of them and the thing about training as a cognitive therapist quite early on in my career I trained before I was a consultant um, so I've been a cognitive therapist for 30 something years as well is that it it matched my style of communication so beautifully that it just kind of incorporated itself into Everything, to the point that um, when you're a a trainer in medicine, trainees have to give anonymised feedback about their trainers. And once uh, the training faculty gets five lots of feedback, the trainer then gets their feedback so that they can't identify a particular trainee. Yes, And all my trainees would say one of the the great benefits of um, training with Catherine is the cognitive therapy she gives you in your supervision sessions. And of course, I wasn't giving them cognitive <laughs> therapy in the supervision <laughs> sessions at all. But this, the communication style yeah. is, is that way. And the characteristic really is that curiosity, mm. that sense, not that I've come here to fix it, but I've come here to sit in it with you and be curious about it mm. so that you can notice what is fixable mm. and decide the steps that you want to take to fix it and so I was trying at the very beginning to to work out what what are the steps and to start off with I thought I was going to write about a toolkit and I had um, you know I could even envisage the the cover of the book being like a yellow toolkit with black bands across it and all the rest of it and then I realized that actually it's not going to work because a toolkit you pick up one tool and you use it And then you put that one down to pick up the next tool to do the next thing. And the the DIY job is a process. It's a series of tasks. And a conversation doesn't work like that because you introduce the first skill and then you add the next one on and then you add the next one on. Yeah. And I realized actually, do you know, maybe it's a little bit more like dancing. Yeah. So I started a dance metaphor in an early draft of the book. And then one of my brothers read it for me, went on a very long walk. He does thinky walks, so he did a big thinky walk about it. And then he came back to me with this most fantastic synthesis of dance as metaphor for conversation um, and just, just offered that to me. So that a lot of that I, I picked up and, and threaded through the book because that sense that we want to be paying attention not taking over, leaving space for thinking, being curious, holding a sense of safety, those things all at the same time is very much like moving with the rhythm and stepping forwards and stepping backwards and you know, collaborating. And one of the things I really liked about the the metaphor of dance is when we trip, when we're dancing together, We help each other. Mm. We don't stand back and fight each other. And also, then, towards the end of the book writing, I realized that thing that people talk about, which is how do you even get into the conversation in the first place, is exactly the same as a dance. It's an invitation. Yes. Yes. So I went back then to say, actually, we don't have to begin, middle, and end the whole thing in one sitting. We can just get over the reluctance even to name the thing that we want to talk about by issuing an invitation to talk about it Mm. and now the power is shared Mm. you decide whether you want to you decide when you want to and when we come together we both know what the agenda is Mm. so dance was a really really helpful metaphor
0: travel is this made you an expert not just in death but in every aspect of life pretty much and that's quite a Uh, a heavy responsibility (laughs) how do you cope with the flood of emails and messages on social media you can't answer them all I do try to
1: because people are telling me that they're showing their tenderness they're telling stories that really really matter to them and I would hate anybody to feel that they'd offered that into the public space that they do offer it and it had gone unattended. So I try very, very hard to keep up with it, but it's become a job mm-hmm. and and I don't have help with it. Um so and I don't think I could have help with it because nobody else could say what I would want to say mm-hmm. about what somebody offers from their personal experience. Most of the time it's dealable with by just being attentive and assiduous and, and keeping up with it. It's hard if I go on holiday or take a screen break. Mm. And then last week, I had a a, a kind of overwhelmed viral post. Uh, a, yes, about about the the queen, queen, yes, about the Queen, yes. About the Queen dying. Incredible. Um, and the response to that was so enormous um, that I I've had to put notices on my social media saying to people, look, I'm really sorry, it's going to take me a while to reply to everything because it was so huge. I had more than two million views of, of that. Twitter thread wow, and, really? and then people Goodness. wanting to um, tell their stories and the thing that's lovely though and this has happened from the very beginning is by the time I find those stories and particularly by the time I find the responses from somebody who's saying it's all very well for you to say that but this terrible thing happened to me and you're wrong saying that dying can be okay because you know I I was stripped Bear by the awfulness of what happened to the person I loved and those things do happen there are unusual difficult deaths that people are living with that traumatic memory by the time I get to them already the other followers on social media have got to them saying that sounds awful are you okay do you want mm-hmm. to private message me mm-hmm. would you like a phone call what's really Wonderful is the way people look after each other. And I know there are a lot of things said about the lack of compassion in social media and the cruelty that can happen out there. But actually, what I've found is that I've joined into a really compassionate space and people really look after each other. And a similar sort of thing happens in um, book signing queues. What happens in the queue is that because each person wants to tell their story, the queue takes a long time. Mm. And people tell their stories to each other in the queue. And they look after each other and they support each other. And I met people at Hexham Book Festival a couple of years ago, who had first met each other in a different queue at a different book festival. And they come back Again, and met for the evening to to come and talk about dying at Hexham. (laughs) But they were two widows who had made a friendship by waiting to talk about their gorgeous husbands and how much they missed them to me and had ended up talking to each other about it.
0: How amazing!
1: Isn't that just lovely? What a lovely thing to happen! So I can't do it all, I do my best to keep up with it, but I know that there are people who look after each other in in that social media backwash
0: well that seems to me a good note to end on you have given a masterclass in the art of work catherine thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you so much thank you so much for listening You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me do have a look at my website theartofwork.co and do join me for another podcast next week.